here with the Deals Activist Investing Today podcast, and I'm excited to report we have Ancora Advisors Jim Chadwick with us. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, definitely. Thank you for thank you for the invite. So I'm just going to do a little bit of a background here. Ancora was formed in 2003 in Cleveland, and Jim has been with the firm since 2014, and he kind of. Is a it leads their activism efforts. Uh, and uh, since 2014, Ancora has in, been engaged in a number of activist campaigns and a bunch of proxy contests, uh, all of which were settled except for one, this Edgewater uh, technology. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, this year, Ancora and two other shareholders reached a settlement with Element Fleet Management. That's a Toronto-based truck and car service fleet management company, and you got four direct independent directors on the board as part of that settlement. Um, in 2018, earlier this year, Ancora and Legion, another activist fund uh, that we know very well here at The Deal, reached a settlement with SPS Commerce, a software company, to appoint three directors to the board. And then last year, Ancora succeeded at getting four directors installed Edgewater Technology using a written consent solicitation, which I'm fascinated with those because we do not see them very often, at least not anymore. Um, what else we got? In 2017, you reached a settlement with Potbelly, got it getting an Encora director on the board, and you are currently a director at Stewart Information Services and Hill International, which is a construction consulting services company. So lots of activism for uh, you, Jim, at a uh, variety of different companies. Let's, so I guess let's uh, you know, start the way I usually start. If you could maybe just tell us a little bit about Encora and your role at the firm, and maybe a little bit about Ancora's activist strategy. Sure, sure. Ancora is a Cleveland-based asset manager. We have about $7 billion of assets under management today. Um, within those assets, which is spread across a diversified base, we have, it's our, our hedge fund group, which within our hedge fund group is, lies our, our activist strategy. Mm-hmm. So I actually joined the firm in 2014, as you mentioned earlier, and I was brought in specifically to launch a standalone activist strategy. Uh, Incora had engaged in activism historically within its its multi-strategy hedge fund, Merlin Partners. But uh, I think doing it as on a standalone basis was something we felt was possible as Merlin had grown assets and had developed a, a fairly strong track record in its activist uh, in its activist investments. So you guys, so you focus on a few uh, specific sectors, right? I've noticed uh, closed-end funds, kind of like Phil Goldstein does a lot of closed-end funds uh, with this bulldog you guys do. Um, uh, efforts there in banks and then uh, I guess operating companies uh, are those basically your know, three different categories or uh, you know in which yeah you know, I mean more than the other you do you know one 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 of those categories a little bit more than the other or how's it break up yeah sure yeah we, we definitely that's something that we think differentiates us in the way we go about the activism and that you know we are we are multi we call it multi-vertical for focused and that is you know, typically, especially two of those categories, banks and thrifts and closing funds are oftentimes activists that focus on that area, usually focus on pretty much only on that type of uh, asset class. And so there's a handful of activists that are focused on closing funds. You mentioned, obviously, one of the most notable uh, bulldog investors, Phil Goldstein. And then on the banks and thrift side, there's there's a handful of investors that have focused on that space. Primarily, it's, it's publicly traded community banks. And so, you know, when we, we launched this fund as a standalone it had been the history of the firm and both the experiences of our partners, including myself, that we had had experience investing in banks and had a lot of success there. And it was an area that it's, it's definitely a nuanced and different form of activism. It's, it's, you know, it's different when you're in a bank, you can't 
can't take control of a bank board. You're a minority a director, minority investor, and you have to work collaboratively and constructively to help these companies really along towards an eventual event path is typically where it ends up. Um, I, I think our, our experience like, uh, in that, you mean like uh, community banks combining with each other, that's the event path? It, it, it usually is. I, w- I would say of ours, probably 75% of the time they end that way, but there's some like Riverview was a bank I was on the board of that did not end in a sale. And if a company is executing on its operating plan and the market starts rewarding it with a fair valuation that, you know, for us, we always come in there and tell the bank what we think the private value of the bank would be today in a, in a sale and mm-hmm. really measure their success based on how much that, you know, they close that gap. Um, if that gap is really wide and they can't develop a plan that works to close it, then we're going to obviously put more pressure on them. And in cer- certain situations like Riverview where it closed on its own was one that we ended up resigning and stepped aside and sold our stock. And, and uh, you know, it was, uh, it was, we had, a I think, a near 100% return in the investment. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, no, I talked to uh, Richard Lashley at PL Capital um, on and off about his kind of community bank campaigns there. So that's definitely, uh, 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 I guess, a successful area for activism in the past. And then you do operating companies, right? For example, like this, I guess, Hill International and maybe um, Potbelly, the restaurant chain or... Yeah, I mean, that's uh, operating companies and in the, in the, it's truly probably more like activism as we know it, where that's where we bump into more of our our, our colleagues or competitors, so to speak, uh, groups like Legion and others engaged um, that really are investing in. These are not asset specific like a bank or a closed end fund. These are just general operating businesses. And in, typically we're focused on small cap, some, some micro cap, but predominantly small cap opportunities. Um, I think our, our, our area of focus, we're focused mainly around capital allocation and a lot of it, there's obviously M&A to a lot of these things. A lot of times it has to do with multi-segmented companies. We're looking to create value by spinning or selling off pieces of it and, you know, hoping these companies effectively re-rate once they're, once they're focused more around their core competencies and focused on their highest return businesses. So Jim, I thought one of the most interesting things about your background was that you had worked with Ralph Whitworth and David Batchelder at uh, this pioneering activist fund, Relational Investors. I know Relational doesn't exist today and, and Ralph Whitworth has passed away, but I considered uh, Ralph to be a, uh, you know, one of the most important activists historically, not just because, you know, he was able to get pension fund investors to support his fund and also some of these huge campaigns. I remember uh, Home Depot with uh, where he successfully took on Bob Nardelli and uh, Dick Grasso's interlocking directorships there, but also because Ralph was successful at uh, lobbying the SEC to change the the, uh, the 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 rules for activism in many ways, you know, they instead of having a only change of control slates of directors, you could now have minority slates of distant directors come up for a vote. So uh, I'm just curious, you know, what? Tell me a little bit about your experience working uh, for relational investors and and you know, David Dotcher is still very busy today. He's, he's on the board of Lowe's, uh, which is quite interesting in itself. Um, it just what is you know how how was how did that help uh, kind of craft the, the style of investing you do today? I, I mean, I think it, it it was the most important factor in my career in terms of what what I'm doing today and how I've kind of gone to go about gone about doing uh, or pract- you know really practicing activism uh, on a day to day basis for most of my career now since I joined Relational. But I joined the firm back in '99. Relational, I think, effectively launched in '96, and and when I was when I joined in '99, there was actually only one other analyst there. So wow. the firm was still relatively small, less than 500 million at that point. And you know, Ralph and David 
came over from, they'd actually both worked for T. Boone Pickens and David Batchelder was actually the president of Mesa in the eighties. And, and Ralph was one of Boone Pickens kind of chief lieutenants. So when David moved out from, I think, Oklahoma out to San Diego and really set up shop anywhere he wanted to go at that point with the reputation he had, he and Ralph started working on activism, really more on a one-off basis and doing kind of single idea campaigns. And then eventually that converted into this, you know, what, what became relational investors, which came through an initial seeding from, from CalPERS and other mega, mega pension funds. And Ralph was, you know, I think Ralph and David both, but they were definitely pioneers in the strategy. It was, I think when joining that firm back then, especially there really was hardly anyone else doing it. Now today it's become so common and really ubiquitous throughout, you know, I would say throughout global markets back at a time 1999, where there's really only a handful. There was the Carl Icons of the world and others like it, but there really wasn't. I think relational may have been sit, you know, structured as the first pure play, like activist only fund. And their, their, their mandate was, you know, it was a long only activist only each name and obviously varying degrees of activism. And I think working with, from working with Ralph and learning from Ralph, I think it was, it, I was always fascinated just how, I think the way he conducted himself in the boardroom and, and the way he was able to actually execute these these strategies i mean he, he would i think you know he referred to it sometime as the analyst team which i was a member of as we're sort of sort of like a, a process of of the detectives and the and the prosecutor so to speak and you know was his job was to go prosecute the case and we're the ones building it and and it very much so there was specialization there and there's a guy named john sullivan who ran the research group who was who was, who was outstanding as well and that was uh that was a great experience for me and and those guys i think really really pioneered a lot of what what today is shareholder activism. All right. Awesome, Jim. That's a really interesting little bit of background there. I think a lot of people interested in activism are kind of fascinated with some of its roots and things like that. So appreciate you going over that. So let's talk about some of your activism today. Um, I thought uh, it was interesting that you settled with Hill International not too long ago uh, to get a seat uh, uh, for yourself on the board. Uh, there, you know, there's a situation where there's a number of activists. I think uh, the Activist Podcast Today podcast has uh, talked to Arnaud Adler, uh, Engine, who was involved in that situation, and of course Phil, who we had talked about before at Bulldog, was involved there. So, you know, what's what uh, you got a standstill? I guess what? Tell me a little bit of the background about your campaign there or efforts there. Yeah, I mean, obviously, in recognition of the standstill, I'll keep it to, to those those details. But our, our history there is, you know, Hill as a whole has had a history of a long history of, of shareholder intervention, and Phil Phil Goldstein was one of the, the prominent players in that, running multiple proxy contests, eventually winning um, winning the proxy contest that unseated a, a good portion of the board. Um, as a result, today you mentioned several of the activists that are there, also Crescendo as well, oh, yeah. another that have put multiple activist representatives on the board. The company, you know, I think it's been a tough situation in the sense, you know, we had, we had invested, started in late 2016 originally. And our, originally our investment was predicated on the fact that we knew that the company had multiple businesses. They could sell one of which that we believe take cash and basically delever the rest of the business. And either it would operate as a pure player or would eventually uh, sell down the road. And, and uh, you know, I think with the cast of characters involved, we felt like, a lot of like-minded folks and it was a it was a good good investment on that basis but i think these guys have had a string of bad luck and the one that's most notable was they had ended up uh after they sold their claims division they ended up uh, in a situation where they had to do a significant amount of uh, restatements in their financials not necessarily necessarily material uh 
items that change the the for, you know the financial picture of the company, but just going back several years and over a ton of various transactions, mostly international related to foreign currency. And so as a result, the company, which which we thought would take six months or so to get you know current on its financials, you know, eventually took so long that the company it was over a year. And the company eventually ended up getting delisted by the NYC, which is what happened in August. At that point in time, going into August this 2018, we become one of the largest shareholders of the company. Um, I think once we saw the delisting occur and the stock had, you know, re- re- in reality had collapsed afterwards, we felt like we had to get involved. We own too much stock to kind of just continue to be on the outside. And we just wanted to understand better exactly what the issues were and why it was taking so long to resolve them. And it's really, I think, you know, there's a lot of, different reasons to go on the board. And, and, and I think this one was one where we felt like, you know, and oftentimes actually increasingly so, we'll actually use third parties, like independent representatives to actually sit on the board for Encora, not, so it won't be a directly an Encora representative. And mm-hmm. this is an example where we felt like it had to be. And so yeah. um, that's, that's how that came about. Is part of it that you felt that the market had overreacted negatively to the restatements after like getting to understand the business a lot, uh, a lot better? And one of the, that's one of the reasons you got involved or I can't, I didn't quite know. Did you, were you involved before? We, well, we, were in, we were involved before the restatements were announced. And then when they were, obviously the stock had traded down, which, which re- resulted in us buying more because we felt like it had okay. nothing to do with the quality of the quality of the company. And then okay. I think the recent, the recent leg down in the stock is the dramatic one that they had. That's been, the, that's been kind of the final, I, I don't want to use the word straw, but so to speak, that got us involved here on, on, on the board level. Mm-hmm. And so what do you expect will happen next at the company? Or do, can you say anything about, uh, you know, is there, will they do some spinoffs or, or sell the business or anything like that? Or I think, I, I mean, I can't, I have to be careful what I say here. We're having right, a, you're on the board. Call, uh, <laughs> a call tomorrow, but I mean, I think the plan here is to, to focus on execution, focus on blocking and tackling and focus on growing, growing the top line. And, you know, we'll figure out, you know, as if we're able to do those things, I think we'll have a lot of optionality down the road. Okay, cool. Uh, so another uh, activist campaign that I followed closely, but on it, uh, I haven't haven't looked into too much lately, which is the uh, uh, Potbelly, the uh, you know quick service restaurant uh, chain, and uh, you got involved there. I was actually one of the my favorite analysts covering it, uh, covering the retail food uh, chain industry. Stephen Anderson at at Maxim. Um, recently upgraded Potbelly from a hold to buy, saying that they're undertaking a more aggressive franchising program. That's one of the things that Ancora wanted them to do, right? Uh, that they, uh, yeah. which is often, a, it's actually a frequent tactic of activists to kind of push companies to franchise more company-owned stores. Um, uh, so anyway, just what, what are your, what are your uh, thoughts on, on, on Potbelly going forward? I mean that. I mean that. I think going back to what you just mentioned, that's how we got involved originally. Was we had, we had the, the opportunity screened out mostly because the stock had traded down. This was back in May May 2017, and we'd done you know started when we were working on the company doing our research there. We saw that you know the company had an extremely high percentage of company owned locations and very little franchise. And so we you know we had seen what had happened in the past with other companies that have gone through these not just growth through franchise, but really, well, you know, refranchising existing stores. And, mm-hmm. you know, Jack in a Box is a classic example of a right. company that went into a big refranchising program, you know, ended up transforming the company and the valuation. And so that was, we published a public letter in June of 17 that outlined our thesis, which in that letter, we never said anything about selling the company or anything along mm-hmm. those lines. I think, I think in response to maybe the pressure, they, they ended up publicly announcing they had hired a banker in, in early August 17 and, 
and you know that they went through ended up going through a process and during that process we continued to uh you know continue our discussions with the company and eventually ended up settling with them um also a very similar settlement like the, the hill situation but and joe bain who's one of the portfolio managers here in core ended up joining the board in october mm-hmm. 17 he's still on the board today so i mean that that company now is in the throes they've brought in a new ceo um and right. you know i think they're in the part now to go to execute the strategy to start fran- refranchising stores potentially here in in hopefully in the near term and obviously better use of balance sheet, better capital allocation in general, and, and obviously future growth through, through franchises. There's, there's parts of the business that have to get fixed first. And I think they're, mm-hmm. they're making you know, good progress on that. And in my opinion, there's a lot of M and A going on in the, uh, you know, particularly with these smaller restaurant chains, uh, you know, private equity firms are rolling up a lot of these retail food uh, chains and uh, some of these big companies like uh, Restaurant Brands International bought Popeye's not too long ago, trying to build, build a kind of consolidate under one roof a number of these restaurant chains. So I wonder if that could be an outcome. We'll see about that. But I wanted to like ask you about Element Fleet Financial before we run out of time. Uh, I thought that that was a pretty interesting situation. There was, I guess, it, that was a settlement where you're able to get four uh, independent directors onto the board there. Uh, tell me a little about that one. Yes, yeah, so that's one that came together rather quickly for us in that, you know, the element had been an activist target of a couple other notable activists, namely Mercado and Sagemhead back in 2017, right. uh, you know, which resulted in the company doing a process, which actually failed, which they announced in February, uh, February 3rd, I think. A strategic review process. Was really- that was, it was a strategic review process to look into whether to sell the business or not. And that ended with no sale. That's right. That's right. And on, I mean, there, there was a lot of rumors around what, who it was and what happened and private equity being involved. But in the end, you know, I think with numbers that were slipping and, and other issues in the business, I think the buyers, you know, really either their bids weren't holding or they were walking away. And, and so the, the opportunity was created for us as the stock collapsed in, you know, you know, in February and then again in March, which created a great buying opportunity for Encora, quite frankly. And so there's sort of a, you know, a changing of the guard, so to speak, in that, you know, we, we started building our position. I think Mercado and Sachem had started kind of moving all moving on with their position at that point. They've, too. they've liquidated, and right? They're not involved anymore. Are they? I, I don't believe they are. I mean, okay. it's a Canadian right. company, so you can't right. see it in their F, but I mean, right, you know, right, right. I'm assuming they're pretty much out. So okay. we ended up working and through negotiating with the board in particular with the chairman, you know, it ended up where if, you know, we collaboratively worked with the, and I shouldn't say as a group, it was really a, uh, more back and forth through the chairman directly, but constructively, I guess is the best word, with two other shareholders, Edge Point and Lion Point. We structured a, a, a settlement there that, you know, refreshed the board, brought in four new directors, ended up bringing in a new, very talented CEO and and, and some of the uh, legacy directors, I think, who would really probably needed, you know, needed, this board needed a refresh. And, and mm-hmm. you know, it's a company that we think is fundamentally sound overall and, and, and should be a very defensive stock, you know, going forward, even in a tougher tougher. Uh, economy tougher market cycle and we also felt like none of their problems were actually terminal and you know really just needed you know management focused on the day-to-day and running the business cleaning up some of the problem areas but also just re- re- you know restoring the balance sheet as well and that's something they just did recently and you know i think the company's on its way right now to, to uh obviously it's the stock's done extremely well in the last several months and I wanted to mention that the deal reported not too long ago that uh, Element Fleet uh, had signed a new contract with Amazon as uh, to distribute uh, their their uh, use 
you know, as a Amazon's using it as a logistics company for to have distribute their packages through some of Amazon, some of Element Fleet's vehicles. So that's really fascinating, and we'll be watching that's a, Element. That's a, sorry, oh, sorry. Last thing, that's a tremendous opportunity for the company. So, like, we're very excited. The company has said very little about it, but you know, your article is outstanding, and you know, I think that'll be something going going forward that. I think has you know we'll see where the relationship unfolds, but that 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 relationship, just the not just the cachet of the customer there in Amazon, but just the the size and magnitude of that program they're trying to launch, that could become a significant piece. And and obviously, I don't think that's even really valued into the stock today. All right, awesome. Thank you, Jim, for taking so much time to speak with us. This has been the Deals Activist Investing Today podcast, and hopefully, we'll have you back on again sometime soon. So, thank you for joining us. Sure, anytime. Thank you.